Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And a busy Thursday on tap, including breaking news from the European Central Bank. Policymakers raising interest rates by an aggressive half a percentage point. Their first hike in more than a decade with hints of more aggressive action to come to tame inflation. The ECB's job made harder too by political turmoil in one of its largest nations, Italy. Prime Minister Mario Draghi resigning today after his coalition government collapsed, sending the country's sovereign bond yield soaring. Also in Europe, Russian gas flowing once again through the Nord Stream pipeline, albeit at a fraction of full capacity. The International Energy Agency warning of a worsening energy crisis for the continent as winter approaches. We'll be joined in just a moment's time by the executive director of the IEA, Fatih Birol. For now, energy investors and users, I think, breathing a sigh of relief. Natural gas easing by, uh, as you can see there, more than 2.5% bigger losses for Brent and US crude, almost 4% in the case of WTI. Selling pressure building in the cryptocurrency space as well. Tesla announcing it sold some 75% of its Bitcoin holdings for liquidity purposes, down 2.8%. As you can see, the Bitcoin sale coming amid a challenging quarter for the EV maker. Better than expected profits, but margin pressure too as a result of challenges over supply chains and production in COVID-hit China. Tesla shares higher, however, in pre-market trade. And a mixed day overall for global stocks. US futures looking stronger. Italy, as I've mentioned, the underperformer in Europe, down by around half a percent, but off those intraday lows. And over in Asia, modest gains for the Nikkei as the Bank of Japan keeps its interest rates at rock bottom levels. Plenty to get to this Thursday. Let's begin with the action in Europe. And it's a liftoff, finally, for European Central Bank interest rates. Now, that announcement of a half a percent rate hike comes within the past hour. And the ECB also launching a pretty well telegraphed new program to ease stress in sovereign bond markets. Claire Sebastian joins me now. The timing couldn't have been better or worse, of course, for a final collapse of the Italian government. Talk us through what the European Central Bank said today and, of course, deciding to go that full half a percentage point too, which sends a strong message. Yeah, this was a really big move, Julia, from the European Central Bank, ending sort of two eras in one fell swoop. One, that they haven't raised rates at all since 2011. Meanwhile, uh, the Fed has actually raised rates 12 times uh, in that period. Uh, And also because they've actually been at negative interest rates since 2014. So this uh, half a percent rate hike brings them back to zero. The, the ECB finally uh, joining the, the, the rate rise party that we're seeing uh, around the world as inflation really forces the hand uh, of central banks. But there were two things that allowed them to do this bigger than expected uh, rate rise. One, they said, because of the inflation situation. It's at 8.6% in the eurozone. That's the highest ever since records uh, began when the euro was launched. And second, because they did manage to pull together this anti-fragmentation tool, this, this mechanism that we're still waiting uh, for final details on, which is, is, is designed to sort of 
allow the ECB to, to regulate borrowing costs across the eurozone, to stop them rising too fast uh, in some places and not so much in other places, to allow the monetary policy decisions that they make to, to sort of be the same uh, in all different countries. They've got that in place now. It's been approved. That means that the risks of raising rates uh, are a little bit moderated. So two key things there. But, but clearly, you know, a major move. The ECB needed to show that it was being proactive in the face of these inflation rates to restore credibility. Uh, and take a look at the euro against the dollar today. We have seen some rises there after it almost hit parity uh, just, a, just a few days ago. So that shows a, a slight increase in confidence there, although still, obviously, Julia, uh, at historic lows. I think the question for many out there is, is this actually going to be a tightening cycle or is this just going to be a, a little bit of a blip and then perhaps an economic downturn gets in the way? Yeah, and that's going to be the key. And for those that were criticising perhaps this idea that it's easing in the bond market, trying to contain those bond yields, um, they got the half a percentage point, to your point, about the, the catch-up perhaps on, uh, on mm. some of the inflationary pressures. Claire Sebastian, thank you. Now, one less thing for the European Central Bank to worry about, at least in the short term, gas is flowing again from Russia to Europe via Germany. It follows a maintenance shutdown on the Nord Stream 1 pipeline and days of uncertainty about whether supplies would resume at all. Fred Pleitgen joins us now from Berlin. So the good news is gas is flowing once more, but at a severely reduced rate, around, what, 40 percent capacity? Yeah, around, yeah, you're absolutely right, around 40%. At the beginnings, the Germans said that it might only be, actually be 30%, but now it seems to be at around 40% capacity that uh, oil, uh, that gas is flowing into Nord Stream 2 and then obviously flowing here into Germany and into the rest of Europe. Now, the Germans are saying that simply isn't enough. They say that they would need uh, the pipeline to run at a much larger capacity, and they believe that Russia is doing this for political reasons. It was really interesting, Julia, because, of course, I would say that there was a lot of concern here in this country that there could be a full shutdown of Russian gas completely for a long period of time. Uh, and the German economics minister, he actually just finished a press conference a couple of minutes ago where he accused Russia of doing all this for political reasons. He said that Russia was not a reliable partner. And he also admitted that Germany had made itself as the largest economy here in Europe and a huge industrial economy, of course, way too dependent on Russian energy. Now, the Germans have said, despite the fact that gas is still flowing, they are so concerned about the situation that they've just put in place a whole flurry of new measures to try and conserve gas for those winter months where obviously they are going to need it. They want the capacity of their storage facilities to be at around 95 percent come November 1st. That's an extremely difficult task. And that means, especially with the gas flowing at only around 40 percent in Nord Stream 1, that means they're going to have to conserve a lot of energy. They're trying to get people to conserve a lot of energy, trying to get the industry to conserve a lot of energy. But they're also mobilizing a lot of their coal reserves as well to try and get energy from other sources so they don't need to use gas to make electricity, for instance, and need to use as little as possible to actually get heat uh, as well, of course, come the months in fall. So the Germans really, you could almost describe it as panic in some echelons here of uh, the German government and of political parties, extremely concerned about the situation and also about the fact that this pipeline now is running again, but only running at around 40%. Of course, the Russians say that a, that a turbine that was being serviced in, in Canada was missing, and that's why the pipeline is running at that lower capacity. The Germans say they absolutely don't buy that. But the reality is they have to deal with this new situation where energy is very hard to come by for a country, of course, as you very well know, that just needs a huge amount of energy to keep that industrial heart beating here in this country. Absolutely. I think uh, some would argue that panic is a good thing in order to, to force better preparation and ongoing preparation. Fred, great to have you with us. Thank you. Fred Pleitgen there.
Now, the International Energy Agency describes the Russian situation as perilous, quote, and warns Europe it must prepare for a long, hard winter. In response, it's drawn up a five-point action plan, which includes letting big industry auction off their excess gas supplies, incentivizing less consumption, minimizing gas use in the power sector, which means relying more on coal and oil and nuclear power in the shorter term, improving coordination, too, between gas and electricity operators across Europe, and reducing household demand. And then harmonising emergency planning, and that includes energy rationing if needed. Fatih Birol is the IEA's executive director, and he joins us now. Dr. Birol, Fatih, fantastic to have you on the show. The short-term uncertainty over this pipeline now appears to be over, but the risk that this is weaponised, to use the term in Europe once again, surely remains very high. Uh, uh, definitely so. I think the, it's uh, uh, good news that some uh, gas uh, from Russia uh, started to flow, uh, but I think it is too early to be uh, happy about this. Uh, the current gas flows from Russia to Europe compared to uh, the normal years, the historical averages, it's only about one third of uh, what Europe received from Russia. This is one reason why we shouldn't be so happy. And the second is, uh, it can be cut uh, anytime. Uh, we have experienced this in the last uh, few weeks, uh, last few months, that the Russia may well use this as a leverage for uh, reaching its uh, political goals. And you're saying to, to Europe, they need to expect that. They need to expect and be better prepared for a full cutoff. Uh, definitely so. Definitely so. I mean, if if we assume in uh, Europe the uh, the Russian current uh, gas flow continues as it is until uh, winter, throughout the winter, plus all the LNG Europe is getting uh, from uh, United States and elsewhere, which is a record high, continues to be at these levels, plus the maximum amount of gas we are getting to Europe from. Norway, Azerbaijan, Algeria, if they continues again at this maximum capacity, even if there is no single accident or fire or this and that around the world, Europe still needs to reduce its gas consumption about 20% compared to today in order to have a safe and a normal uh, winter months for its citizens, for its economy. So. We should uh, give a sight, hoping that somewhere, sometime, huge amount of additional gas will come to uh, Europe, which is not the case. There is not enough gas around the world. So what we have to do in Europe is to reduce gas consumption to be prepared for winter. Wow. So you're saying that even without any other accidents, there needs to be 20 percent reduction in consumption to avoid shortages, energy shortages. Uh, and rationing this winter. Exactly. Rationing. And it's sort of impossible. The better, uh, the, the, yeah, the, the earlier we start, the better it is, uh, because when we come to the winter months, the, the, the measures uh, we may need to take may well be more drastic than uh, what we have uh, suggested. The better is it we start now and more importantly, in a coordinated way within uh, Europe. So it shouldn't be uh, those days, if we don't take the measures now, it shouldn't be a wild west. It should be a coordinated, cool-headed preparation, and uh, we should have an emergency plan 
across Europe, across all countries. You are talking about Germany. Definitely Germany is uh, one of the uh, uh, most vulnerable countries, but it's not only Germany, it is Italy. And most importantly, several uh, Eastern European uh, countries uh, that are relying heavily, much more heavily than uh, uh, Germany or Italy on uh, Russian uh, gas. We have to also think about those countries as well. I mean, you're taking more action at a time when Europe's suffering an extreme heat wave and demand for electricity use for, for air conditioning is accelerating off the charts. Is any country doing enough? Germany's just announced a whole new raft of, of measures that they're going to take. But what you're saying is it requires input from governments, from, from the business, from the industry, the industrial sector, and also consumers to check their behaviour. Is any European nation doing enough at this stage? I would uh, not be telling you the truth if I would say that any country is fully mm. prepared uh, now. There are uh, different uh, actions, the different uh, measures taken in different countries. But in my view, it should be at the European level, European Union level, that we prepare and coordinate our response uh, to uh, Russian uh, 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 policies, uh, Russian uh, gas policies. And uh, in my view, this winter, Europe is going to go through a historical test, whether or not Europe as a union can uh, show solidarity and Europe can, uh, as a whole, uh, support each other. And uh, not only the big countries, but also small countries are uh, well prepared for this uh, rather uh, long and hard winter. You're basically saying without saying that you fear there are going to have to be energy cut down cuts because there are going to be shortages and the danger is there's infighting within Europe. Exactly. So it is the it is the worst thing from a political point of view that the European countries are uh, competing with, with each other in order to get the available gas. It is better to prepare now and have an emergency plan uh, across uh, Europe so that the measures that we have to take in winter are uh, not hurting the economy and not uh, hurting the political uh, solidarity of the European uh, countries. This is what uh, the Russians and the others uh, would like to see. So therefore, again, uh, Europe is going to uh, go through a historical test in terms of its union. Yes, don't let the politics perhaps play into to Russians' hands at this moment. You've also, sure. and we can talk about the broader energy complex, said that energy supplies should also be released. President Biden was just in the Middle East. He spoke to the uh, Crown Prince in, in Saudi Arabia. How confident are you that that relationship will ultimately end up in perhaps more supplies from Saudi Arabia, if not other OPEC nations, perhaps where capacity exists? Uh, Saudi Arabia, in the, when we look at the previous uh, uh, similar uh, crisis uh, like that, Saudi Arabia has been a responsible uh, player, provided comfort uh, to the markets, and I very much hope that the Saudi Arabia and other uh, uh, Middle East countries once again provide support, bring new volumes, oil uh, to the market, and at the same time ensure that if the world needs more oil, they will be on the side of countries who want to have a stability in the world, who want to uh, avoid a recession, uh, economic recession uh, around the world, which is bad news for not only for the consumers, but producers at the end of the day. So uh, again, uh, oil markets are also going through a very critical time. But uh, here uh, we have enough uh, oil uh, in the Middle East, uh, soon coming from uh, United States, from uh, Brazil, 
and uh, Canada and uh, from other countries. But they will come to the market towards the end of the uh, year. They will hit the market towards the end of the year. And uh, let's do not forget that the International Energy Agency member countries provided substantial amount of oil uh, from its stocks. And they are also slowly but surely hitting the market to provide a comfort zone uh, for the consumers around the world. It, it's coming, is the message. More supply is coming, but it could be a while coming. And that's the problem. Give us the worst case scenario. Can you, in terms of your forecasts for energy prices, if if we end up in a situation where there are shortages, where there's infighting, how high might energy prices go? Because I think that's the most concrete warning to consumers and to governments that you can provide to say, take action today. I mean, the, uh, the, the key word in my view is it is the red alert, red alert for okay. the uh, global economy. It is not only for the countries we talk about, the European countries, but more importantly, developing countries. It is the countries in, in the Asia, in Africa, Latin America. They are uh, going to suffer uh, from high energy prices. And not only the prices will be high, but their uh, currency is also weak and they will go through big difficulties in terms of uh, economy. Therefore, it is the red alert, in my view, where we are now in terms of uh, energy markets. Yes. Prepare now and try and avoid a, a worse recession or recession later. Exactly. If we don't move now, if we don't have a, a international solidarity here, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, in my view, uh, the largest uh, energy crisis the world has ever witnessed in terms of its depth and in terms of its complexity, then uh, we are going to see a recession, which is again uh, bad news uh, for almost all countries around the world, but uh, mostly for the developing nations. Mm. Red alert, sir. We're on it. We've got it. I'm wearing an appropriate colour for you today as well to emphasise the message. Great to have you on the show with us, sir, and we'll chat again soon. Fatih Birol, Executive Director of the Energy International Energy Agency there. Thank you. OK, let's move on. Draghi drama in Italy. The nation looking for a new prime minister after his second resignation in just under a week. Babi Nadao is in Rome for us. It's always complicated in Italian politics. The question is, is the country now headed for fresh elections? And, and what might that bring? Indeed, a period of uncertainty, whatever way it happens. Well, yeah, we are... We are in a period of uncertainty here after a bloodshed last night with this confidence vote when three of the main parties who were very instrumental in this coalition, the coalition that uh, Mario Draghi was leading, decided not to vote. That's very different than voting against him. They instead abstained from the vote, which sends a different message and it sends one to their constituents. Now, these parties, two of them are on the, the center-right coalition, uh, center-right uh, uh, side, one by uh, Silvio Berlusconi, headed by Silvio Berlusconi, who, of course, everyone following Italian politics knows well, and the other by Matteo Salvini. They're polling very high right now. They want new elections before May 2023, which is when this mandate for the 2018 election ends. They're banking on the fact that we will go into new elections in this country because then they could come to power. The other party, the Five Star Movement, the anti-establishment group that won so heavily in 2018, has imploded. They've disintegrated within themselves, and so they need to regroup. And those are the parties that caused Mario Draghi, even though he won a confidence vote last night, to take a good look at the ability he has to govern going forward and said, no, 
I'm not going to have, I'm not going to try it. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm handing it back to you. He gave his resignation and Sergio Mattarella, the president this time, accepted it. So there seems no other way to go forward than to go into new elections. They're talking about dates in early October. Um, and then we're going to see what happens. But this is a, a terrible time for this. The country is in an economic downspin. We're still you know, looking at recovery from the COVID pandemic. There's war next door. All of these factors uh, don't bode well for uh, an election, for a campaign, let's say, because there are a lot of different players here with a lot of different interests, Julia. Absolutely. And whatever your views on Mario Draghi, this is the worst time to be without a government as the European Central Bank's raising interest rates, stagflation, a war in Ukraine, to your point. It's actually not what the country needs, irrespective uh, of anything else. Bobby, great to have you with us. Thank you. Okay, straight ahead on first move, Tesla slams on the brakes when it comes to its crypto commitment. It's not doing too well in China either, but it's working on it. Plus, as airlines are told to do a better job of looking after passengers, Anna Stewart sees firsthand how hard it is to even get on a plane. Will she make it from London to Ibiza? All the tough jobs before the end of the show. We'll find out. Welcome back to an eye-watering penalty. The Chinese government fining ride-hailing giant Didi around $1.2 billion for violating data security laws. The company has been under investigation by China's cyberspace regulator for the past year, even since its blockbuster share listing in the United States. Didi later decided to delist from the New York Stock Exchange. The company says it sincerely accepts the regulator's ruling. Meanwhile, Tesla hitting the brakes. The company's second quarter sales and profit dropped from the previous quarter as COVID lockdowns continued in China. It's the first time since the pandemic that Tesla did not set a new profit record. The company also sold the majority of its Bitcoin holdings. Paula Monica joins us now. Wow, that was a tough ride for Tesla in that introduction. Um, do you know what? I want to start by talking about the sideshow to the sideshow, which is exactly how Elon Musk called it. And I couldn't agree with him more, which was the crypto sale for liquidity purposes. Yes, I thought you were going to go at, uh, to Twitter there for a second, Julia, which is the real <laughs> sideshow. But yes, <laughs> Tesla selling a majority of its crypto holdings in uh, the quarter. And, uh, you know, Musk said that a lot of that had to do with the fact that because of the problems in uh, China because of the COVID lockdowns there, they really needed to maximize their cash position. So he seemed to suggest that they weren't necessarily getting bearish on crypto per se, and they still hold whatever they have in Dogecoin, for example. But it is notable that uh, you know Tesla has been one of the bigger proponents of uh, having cryptocurrency on the balance sheet, along with uh, MicroStrategy and Michael Saylor. But uh, they had to, for liquidity reasons, sell that crypto and get good old fashioned cash, which apparently is still king. Yes, cash rather than, than the crypto version. Um, no irony there. Uh, but to your point as well, and this was, he said this was not about crypto. This was simply about, to your point, the liquidity position. Fine. So we've mentioned the sideshow to the sideshow. We've mentioned the sideshow to the sideshow to the sideshow, which is Twitter. Let's talk about the core business and what was going on there, because this is the first full quarter, I believe, since they raised prices by around 10%. So to get a sense of their pricing power in this market, what did you make of, um, of the results? Yeah, I think that on the one hand, it is concerning that you saw this big deceleration on a sequential quarter 
over quarter basis compared to the first quarter. And since Tesla is a momentum stock, a growth company, people are going to look at the numbers through that lens. But I think as Tesla matures, it's also important to note that compared to a year ago, these numbers were pretty good. One, yes. the earnings were better than expected, but it was still solid revenue and profit growth compared to the second quarter of 2021. And I think that's, Julia, what investors are probably focusing on, because at least at last check, right before the market opened, it looked like Tesla was going to open higher. Uh, so if Tesla shares do wind up in green once the uh, opening bell hits in a few minutes, I think that's a reflection that maybe investors are more encouraged than uh, disheartened by these numbers. Yeah, and they've got a whole host of challenges that everyone's facing. The input costs, labor, an economic downturn, um, all the challenges that everybody else is facing. Cash burn with the ramp up that we're seeing in Texas uh, and Berlin. I was looking at Dan Ives, who's a regular on the show, and he was talking about a 40,000 car a week run rate. So we're talking producing two million cars a year. And this is at a time when we're seeing ever more in competition in this space. Um, as they said on the call, demand here is not a problem. Um, it's pretty mighty. Yeah, demand is clearly strong. But, uh, Julia, you're definitely correct to point out that Tesla doesn't have this market to itself by any stretch of the imagination. GM and Ford are both aggressively ramping up their electric vehicle production. We're seeing more EV focus from European car makers as well. So this is going to be a market that Tesla may have had that first mover advantage to uh, you know, use our show name in, the, in that comment. <laughs> but uh, I'm not so sure that uh, over the long term, people that love their Model S and Model X and Model 3, they're going to find that there are other options out there if they want to switch to another electric vehicle or for people who haven't adopted electric cars yet, they will notice that there are probably cheaper uh, options available from the giant car makers in Detroit and uh, Europe and possibly even Japan as well. Mm-hmm. One of my very favorite first movers, Paula Monica. Thank you for that. And you're hired, by the way, on the advertising there. Thank you. Coming up. The war in Ukraine, high rates and China's COVID lockdowns all putting pressure on economic growth across Asia. The latest forecasts next. Welcome back to First Move, a landmark day for global markets as the European Central Bank raises interest rates for the first time since 2011. The ECB hiking by a greater than expected half a percentage point. The European Central Bank Chair Christine Lagarde saying the central bank had to become more aggressive because of growing pricing pressures. She also noted the added security of the TPI program intended to keep bond yields across the eurozone in check. The governing council judged that it is appropriate to take a larger first step on its policy rate normalization path than signalled at its previous meeting. This decision is based on our updated assessment of inflation risks and the reinforced support provided by the TPI for the effective transmission of monetary policy. Pricing concerns outweighing growth concerns at this moment. European stocks lower across the board. A bit of a softer open for U.S. stocks, as you can see there, too. Lagarde acknowledging the threat of a European recession in her press conference. Though on a more positive note, she said supply bottlenecks that have fueled inflation do appear to be easing a little.
Now, the Asian Development Bank cutting its growth outlook for Asia from 5.2 percent to 4.6 percent for 2022. We have to break it down, though. For East Asia, the forecast has come down to 3.8 percent as China's COVID lockdowns continue. The estimate for South Asia is also downgraded to 6.5 percent amidst the economic crisis in Sri Lanka. But as you can see, the outlook is raised for Central and Southeast Asia, as well as the Pacific region. Joining us now for more context is Albert Park. He's chief economist at the Asian Development Bank. Sir, great to have you on the show. So we've got the overview of Asia there, but I want to break it down. And in East Asia does attract attention simply because your growth forecast, I believe, for China this year, 4 percent, far lower than China's mandated growth level, which is five and a half percent. Just give us a sense of what your assumptions are coming into that level. Well, the big issue in China has been the very strict zero COVID policy, which has really led uh, households to lose confidence. We saw a reduction in real household spending by four and a half percent in the second quarter and a reduction in retail sales of over eight percent. And that's really been uh, driving the downward adjustment in growth rates. And of course, where China goes, so goes the region. Uh, There's a lot of linkages through supply chains from China to other regions. Uh, Some of the city lockdowns in Shanghai and elsewhere have led to some supply bottlenecks, which have caused issues in other countries in Asia as well. Are you factoring in any amount of stimulus into that forecast? And are you also making an assumption that, to your point, a lot of what's driving this is the sporadic lockdowns that we've seen to adhere to zero COVID policy in China? Are you assuming those continue for the rest of the year or adjust in some way? Because that's material to the forecast. Right. We're assuming there's going to be some recovery, and we're also expecting the Chinese government to uh, engage in some stimulus. But we recognize other risks. For instance, the property sector has really struggled, um, and it's also related to some of the confidence issues we talked about before. So despite, you know, China's pretty good record of hitting its own growth projections or forecasts, uh, we're optimistic that they'll be able to do so this year. Or saying they do. I should calibrate that slightly. Um, What about the banking sector in particular? Because we've also been reporting on some concerns for some savers who've not had access to their savings in in some of the rural banks in certain regions. I don't want to overplay this, but how concerned are you after years of reports about the risks in the in the Chinese banking sector and the shadow banking sector? How concerned are you at this moment? Well, there's some concern because a lot of the banking uh, liabilities are related to the housing sector, and uh, we saw the events uh, in some of the rural banks. But what happened in that case is the Chinese government did step in and say, we're going to uh, shield depositors from uh, this burden, and we're going to protect them. And and the Chinese uh, banking system and the government itself has still a lot of ways in which it can really stand up and recapitalize banks or support them to avoid uh, a situation where it would lead to, uh, to some serious contagion or some kind of a crisis in the banking sector. Mm. I mean, it's sort of tied to this in a way, too. Um, and it's something that you've pointed out on social media is unemployment as the economy slows. And the latest statistic for, for China specifically for youth unemployment is more than 19 percent. And you said, look, if you if you look across Asia and the Pacifics, youth is almost five times more likely to be unemployed than adults. I, I've mentioned the Chinese stat just for that country alone, tied to all these sporadic issues that we're talking about and, and the risk of a, a further slowdown, Albert, how concerned are you by unemployment and youth unemployment? 
Well, youth unemployment is an issue in China. It's actually an issue uh, in many countries in the mm. region, and it's really related back to the pandemic when uh, you know a lot of the countries in the region struggled with uh, the virus uh, initially, and recovery has been somewhat modest uh, last year. With some recovery uh, and, and some gaining of pace this year, but the result has been uh, many youth have been dislocated from the labor market for some time, and we view that as a concern in the medium term. We know that when youth uh, are disengaged from the labor market for a long time, we have a scarring effect. It becomes much more difficult for them to get back in uh, to uh, into career tracks, which are gonna make them successful over the long run. Are you seeing policies to try and help with that? Well, I think what you see in, 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 in many Asian countries is a desire to deal with these headwinds, the ch challenges of inflation with elevated commodity prices, but at the same time, not move too quickly with raising interest rates because they want to support economic recovery. And I think in their minds exactly is issues such as youth employment. There's been also an effort, of course, to target vulnerable groups, groups by many governments. But after several years of the pandemic, it's becoming harder and harder to finance that. So we are seeing elevated debt levels in many countries. And so it, it really means that countries need to be very uh, precise in how they target uh, their subsidies and, and try to balance these, these competing concerns of macroeconomic management. I mean, you can substitute most countries around the world for all the challenges that you just pointed out there and the, the lack of a fiscal room to, to try and take action. Um, it's part of what's contributed to the challenges in, in South Korea, uh, sorry, Sri Lanka. And it's, um, and it's exacerbated now by um, political crisis there too. We've spoken to the central bank governor this week, and I know it's incredibly difficult to get any sort of gauge on, on the economic damage that's taking place. But what are your forecasts for Sri Lanka this year, be it growth or, or inflation? Well, our forecast, admittedly, with a lot of uncertainty, is mm. that the Sri Lankan economy will contract by 7.6% this year and by more than 3% next year as well. Sri Lanka, though, you know, was running chronic fiscal deficits over, over 10% the last couple of years, and it was very vulnerable to these shocks that the world has seen, and it just tipped it over into crisis. Most economies in Asia, though, have been relatively well managed. And so even though, you're right, the governments are facing the same challenges as countries all over the world, in Asia, you know, growth of 4.6%, although lower than our previous projection, is still a pretty healthy recovery given all of the headwinds and reflects that sound uh, macroeconomic management that has occurred, which has allowed these countries to continue to recover. It also reflects uh, doing a pretty good job in much of Asia in managing the Omicron virus this year. Uh, the virus has not led to a, a heavy lockdown in most countries. The kind of uh, COVID uh the restrictiveness index that we've looked at has really declined uh, steadily this year, which means uh, economic activity has been back to normal. And, and the region has done a pretty good job with the virus. And that, ha and that has supported growth momentum despite all of the headwinds. And that's domestic demand driven, to your point, as the economy recovers and people get back to life. I mean, to the point where we're seeing forecasts in Southeast Asia, Central Asia and, and the Pacific actually raised, which is incredibly welcome news. Right. I think it is driven by this uh, rising domestic demand. You see it especially in India where, you know, they've had some inf unexpected inflation pressures, which has led the central bank to uh, tick up rates slightly. 
Um, but we still see a rise in consumer confidence as life gets back to normal, and uh, and that is going to carry uh, you know growth to seven point two percent this year. Very quickly, how concerned are you by the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank raising rates? The fact that we're seeing the U.S. dollar strengthen, for example, relative to most other currencies around the world, it also sucks capital from some of these these regions, which obviously is vital at this point in time. We've talked about the financing challenges post-COVID. How much of a concern is that? Uh, we're very concerned about it. I mean, uh, you're right. It creates a lot of financial pressure pressure on the region. Uh, it, it gives central banks more of a reason to want to raise interest rates in response to reduce outflows and to reduce pressure for the currencies to depreciate. Uh, although, again, that's balanced against the desire to recover. Uh, but it reduces the room for a maneuver uh, for uh, sustaining recovery in Asia. So it's definitely a concern. And of course, if growth uh, really uh, slows significantly, especially if the measures in the West make the economies grow much slower, that creates lower demand also for export goods from Asia. Um, and with elevated interest rates and lower growth rates, it becomes even harder to service debt burdens. And that could create you know, financial tipping points for some countries um, if they're not careful. Yeah, but we're not talking about that right now. It's, it's good to be talking about at least some parts of the, of the world raising growth forecasts. Um, Albert, great to get your wisdom on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Albert Park, Chief Economist at the Asian Development Bank. So thank you. Okay, still ahead on First Move. Overheated and overwhelmed. How searing temperatures in China are putting further strain on COVID workers. Welcome back to First Move with a look at the stories making headlines around the world. Parts of Europe still struggling to contain wildfires, even as searing heat waves move eastwards. In Spain, the military has been building firewalls and using water to prevent flames from spreading further. In other regions, firefighters have extinguished some major fires, but officials are urging caution as more strong winds and high temperatures are expected. An intense heat wave is also sweeping over China and it's affecting more than 900 million people. Almost every province in the northeast has issued high temperature warnings, with some weather stations logging record numbers. In at least four cities, temperatures have gone as high as 44 degrees Celsius. That's 111 degrees Fahrenheit. Unusually warm weather in northern Greenland has triggered rapid melting and scientists on the island ice sheet are alarmed. CNN's Renee Marsh reports. Off the coast of northwest Greenland, the water is perfectly still. But puddling on icebergs indicate a transformation is underway. That's the sound of rapid melting, triggered by a few days of unusually warm temperatures. During CNN's first three days in northern Greenland, the temperature topped out nearly 10 degrees higher than normal. It's days like today, warm enough to wear short sleeves near 60 degrees in Greenland. It's a high melt day when it's this unusually warm, and it's also deeply concerning for scientists. It it definitely worries me. We are at 67 latitude here on top of the world in North Pole. And we could just yesterday, especially not today, but yesterday we could wander around in our t-shirts. That was not really expected. It's uh, basically at the melting point today. As you can see, now I can make snowballs. 
At a research site in northeast Greenland, near melt conditions at an elevation of nearly 9,000 feet made what's usually a frozen landing strip inoperable. They have a problem when it's this soft as the surface is now. Climate scientist Aslik Grinstead tweeting, mini heat wave, negative 1.6 degrees Celsius in the middle of the Greenland ice sheet. Our planned planes are postponed because our skiway is not that good when it is this warm. Unable to fly out, the scientists passed the time playing volleyball in shorts atop the ice sheet. Pre-global warming, Grinstead says temperatures near 32 degrees Fahrenheit at this altitude were unheard of. The National Snow and Ice Data Center tells CNN from July 15th through 17th alone, a melt surge in northern Greenland caused ice sheet runoff of about 6 billion tons of water per day. That's about the volume of 2.4 million Olympic-sized pools. Put another way, enough water to flood the entire state of West Virginia with one foot of water in three days. The amount of melt from the ice was was to us was very surprising because it was very warm day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could even hear the ice was just uh, just melting in front of our eyes. Research scientists tell CNN this extent of melt in North Greenland this past week is quite unusual and will contribute to global sea level rise, which impacts coastal communities half a world away. Renee Marsh, CNN, Patufik, Greenland. And in the United States, the January 6th committee convenes Thursday night in Washington for a prime time hearing. The focus is expected to be the 187 minutes that elapsed while the riot happened at the Capitol and when then-President Donald Trump did or failed to do. Stay with CNN for the committee's public hearings on Thursday. Our special coverage starts at 7 p.m. in Washington, 7 a.m. Friday in Hong Kong. Okay, coming up after the break... A stressful sight. Poor Anna Stewart stuck at the baggage carousel. We're inflicting the travel experience on her so that you can avoid it. Her London to Ibiza. Nice challenge. Next. Welcome back to First Move. As holidaymakers continue to face delays and disruption, regulators in the United Kingdom are warning airlines they have to put passengers first. A joint letter from the Competition and Markets Authority and the Civil Aviation Authority says airlines need to stick to the rules, including making sure they aren't selling more seats than they can supply, that they give customers plenty of notice of cancellations and that they're meeting their legal obligations when it comes to rerouting passengers. To see how difficult air travel can be right now, Anna Stewart has managed to travel from London to Ibiza. I love it, Anna. When someone says you have to go on an outside broadcast, you're like, don't worry, I know exactly where you can send me. Send me to Ibiza. But there is a serious angle here, and we should talk about it. Warning needs to be given, because you've talked to people who have literally been stuck at the airport, and it's children included. It's been absolutely terrible, to be honest. I was shocked by even our own experience in terms of queues that... I've never seen a queue like that at Heathrow, and I travel a lot. The security queue was so long that despite arriving at the airport with three hours to go before our departure, we actually had to get removed from the queue, which was so long, there was a man with a sign saying the queue starts here. We had to get removed from the queue and fast-tracked, otherwise we'd miss our flight, which was only one hour delayed. Other people, Julia, as you say, have had even worse experiences, much worse, in fact. They have bounced between different airports now for days, flight after flight, delayed or cancelled. And actually, just two gates on from the flight we took to Ibiza, there was a flight going to Frankfurt, due to take off last night, was still not in the air by the time we were there. So it was already 14 hours 
delayed and counting. And almost everyone I spoke to there waiting at that gate uh, had slept the night on the airport floor, including a couple. Uh, I'll give you their story. Their journey started even earlier than that flight to Frankfurt because they actually started their journey in Ireland. Take a listen. My uh, flight started in Dublin two days ago and uh, my first flight got cancelled. And then I started my flight yesterday to London, the second one, and now this one got cancelled also. And now I'm here and I hope today I will leave the country. <laughs> How are you feeling right now? Annoyed. <laughs> um, hungry, um, tired. Where did you sleep last night? Uh, floor. Are you ever traveling again? Not to the UK. <laughs> I mean, they smile, but they've had a truly dreadful 24, 48 hours. There was also a lady I spoke to who had small children. She said that she and her children slept on the floor all night. She says her children were cold and that they had no food because she says everything was shut. And she said that was because she doesn't have a credit card. And so airlines do have a duty, and I'm very pleased to see the warning from regulators. They're very stretched. It's really hard for them, but they have a duty to provide food, drink, transportation, hotel. If they're too stretched to do that, they give people vouchers or they tell people to go and buy what they can or what they need as long as it's reasonable and it will get compensated later on. But for not everyone, that doesn't always work. And also, there are so many planes that have been cancelled. There are so many people trying to cram themselves into airport hotels or hotels nearby. They are full and prices are skyrocketing. So lots of people just nervous to go and book an airport hotel. They don't know whether they'll get their money back. So plenty of people spending the night on the floor of Heathrow Airport last night. I know, and it comes down to staffing and an inability to hire staff, but the pressure backs up on them too because then they have disgruntled customers and people that are frustrated, and I'm sure they're under a lot of pressure uh, too. Shall I tell you what, though? This proves how good a negotiator you are because I did a similar story once on broadcast, and I got sent to Benidorm. Now, I'm, I have nothing against Benidorm, but people don't often go to Benidorm to sleep. And I remember that I had two very miserable nights where I sat up listening to music all night. Please tell me you're going to stay for the weekend. Now that you've gone to all the effort of getting there, you get to I spend mean, a weekend in Ibiza. It's <laughs> I would love that. I have 24 hours in Ibiza. Much of it will be here, stuck to this camera. But I think after <laughs> many, many queues, I probably had maybe one, two hours. A glimpse of a beach would be quite nice. Oh. But yeah, it was a... It was a brazen pitch. We're pleased to be here, Julia. <laughs> it's a brazen. You don't even get to enjoy it. I, I think people should know that. You're working very hard, I'm being told. <laughs> Julia, shut up. We've got to go. As always. Anna Stewart. Thanks. <laughs> okay, that's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. And I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 